0: A little bit about hermeneutics then. This is not a debate between those who accept the authority of the Bible, the hell believers, uh, and those who reject it, the universalists. What it is, it is a debate about the interpretation of scripture. And I think the discussion around universalism really hinges around hermeneutics, and in particular theological hermeneutics. So I'm gonna cover quite a lot of ground quite fast but it's worth understanding this stuff because a lot of things hang on it, and not just for universalism, but it basically for how we think through all sorts of things in scripture. So I'm not gonna be building a case for universalism as such in this talk, but I'm gonna be laying the kinds of foundations that I think would play a role in such a case. Some of you will be familiar with this. This is from Thomas Tolbert, and I think this is a really helpful way to raise the issue about the interpretation of the Bible. What Thomas Talbot does is he wants, the purpose of this argument here, or these three propositions, is to try and show that everybody has to take some things in the Bible at something other than face value. Everybody's in the same boat on this this score. And so he presents three claims, each of which you can bring out some Bible verses for that appear on the face of it to to support the, the, the proposition. So here are the three propositions. First of all, it is God's redemptive purpose for the world, and therefore his will, to reconcile all sinners to himself. In brief, God wants to save everybody. And it's not hard to think of Bible verses that you can bring out that seem to say, God wants to save everybody. Second proposition, it is within God's power to achieve his redemptive purpose for the world. And again, it's not hard to think of Bible verses that talk about God's Power to bring about his will, that no one can resist it, etc., etc. Third proposition some sinners will never be reconciled to God, and God will condemn them to hell forever, or perhaps annihilate them. And again, it's not difficult to come up with Bible verses that appear to say that. Now, you will have spotted, if you've never seen this before, and if you have seen it before, you'll already know, that all of these statements. Uh, can muster some face value support from scripture, but it can't be the case that they're all true. They can't all be true, it's logically impossible. At least one of them has to be false. And so within traditional Protestantism, this is exactly how the different kinds of Protestant theology tend to go. We have the Calvinists. The Calvinists say that number one is wrong, and they accept two and three. And by this, I'm talking about mainstream, traditional, classical Calvinism. There are, of course, Calvinist universalists. But so they will say, look, God can achieve his salvation, and some people are going to go to hell. So it can't be the case that God wants to save everybody, because if he wanted to, he'd do it, and he doesn't do it. The Arminians, on the other hand, say, well, we think number one is true. God does want to save everybody, but they agree with number three that some people are going to go to hell. So they reject number two. They say God can't actually get all the things done that he wants to get done, and he has to be prepared to settle for second best, or however you want to phrase that. In essence, that is what the Arminian would do. So the Arminian would affirm one and three and reject number two. Universalists, again, they accept one and two, but they reject three. They say, yeah, God wants to save everyone, and God will achieve his purposes, so he will save everyone. But then consequently, they reject the idea that some people will go to hell forever. The point of this is not to show which two of the three are the, uh, are the best ones to hold. The point is to show that everybody, whether you're a Calvinist or an Arminian or a Universalist, is gonna be able to find some of the things they wanna affirm to have biblical support, and they're all gonna have passages that present something of a problem for them that they need to know or have some ideas about what they're gonna do with it. And I think this then shows that We're all in the same boat, and it's not that just universalists have struggled with the Bible, everybody else just has an easy time. They don't. If you've ever been an Arminian or a Calvinist for very long, you will know that there are passages that bug you, and you wish that God had said something other than what was said. But there you go. And what this comes down to is that there are two different threads that we see running through the New Testament. And this this is the root of the kind of complexity that, that we've seen here. The Bible has two counterbalancing threads here. The first one is a thread of judgment, condemnation, and punishment, or destruction, or torment. And, and how many people are going to be tormented? Lost. Some people, most people, all people, depending on which text you're looking at. Uh, wide is the road, and many you know, few people take the narrow road to life many take the wide road to destruction. So you have this one thread, but then on the other hand, we have a thread of texts that appear to teach universal salvation. So one of the issues that we have here is how do you, what do you do with these two? How do you hold them together? And how you deal with this question will really kind of settle where you're gonna, gonna end up on this thing. And I think one of the things that comes out of this is this. Even if we have strong views on how to handle these two threads or which two of the three things we want to affirm, we need to honor and respect those who take different views on this from us, those who have a different way of trying to hold these things together because we're all dealing with the same puzzle here and we're not superhuman and they're idiots. (laughs) Um, We're all trying to deal with the same thing and even if we think there's good reasons for going with our view, Nevertheless, we have to respect those who have good reasons for going with theirs, too. Even if it's wrong. So, let's just mention a few of these passages that we have in mind. For the first thread, you will be familiar with them. Then they, the goats, this is the sheep and the goats parable, will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. They, the persecutors, will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Well, these are part of the Bible, and in fact, some of it's part of the teaching of Jesus. So, you know, you can't ignore it. Then we have a second thread, passages that seem at face value to say something very different. So this is Colossians 1, St. Paul. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. I mean, on the surface, it looks like reconciling all things to yourself, making peace to his, I mean, that kind of looks pretty universalist, particularly in the context, where it talks about creating all things, all things that exist created through him, and the same all things reconciled through his blood shed on the cross. Or, Romans 5, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so one righteous act, that is to say Christ's, resulted in justification and life for all people, the same old people that were condemned in Adam. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. Or a text often used against universalism, but for reasons we could go into, seems to argue the opposite, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So these are some of the texts in the two threads. So what are we going to do with them? There's different things we could do and different ways we could try and hold these together. The first one is to say that the Bible teaches Incompatible visions of the future. And there are actually different ways of taking this particular line. So, some people argue, as I've just said, that the Bible teaches both views and that they don't fit together. Okay? But then the question is so, if that's what you think, then what are you going to do? And there are different things you could do. You could just leave it at that. You could just go, well, it teaches different things, and I couldn't care less. Blah, blah, blah. leave it. However, there are somewhat more sophisticated views and approaches you could take. This isn't massively sophisticated, but it is an approach you could take. You could say, the Bible teaches both views. I'm going to go with this one, and I'm going to reject this one. And the way that would normally go, so John Hick is an example of this. John Hick, uh, the philosopher who argued for universal salvation... And he said, yes, the Bible teaches eternal hell and universal salvation. I don't like, I mean, this is a caricature, but I don't like the hell stuff. It doesn't seem to fit with God's love. I like the other stuff, so we're just going to go with that. It's biblical because it's in the Bible, so they will do me. And um, he didn't feel too much qualms about rejecting the other bit. Marilyn Adams, another universalist, took a similar approach. She said, you know, we'll have the more Christian bits. (laughs) Uh, Well, there's, there's... and, and those other things Jesus said that weren't very Christian, we'll reject. <laughs> or you say, well, maybe there's a way of saying they teach these. The Bible teaches these two kinds of things, and they don't really fit together. But maybe there's a way of kind of holding on to the two. Now, there's different ways you could do that. So some ways. So, for example, T.F. Torrens and a whole bunch of theologians would would have taken the view that something along these lines. Both of these views present possible futures, and we can't say which one will be actualized. But they make us take seriously these possible futures and the importance of making a choice about them. I mean, I'm sure a T.F. Torrance scholar would say that's a terrible way of character- presenting his view, but that is one kind of approach to trying to hold them together. Another one, which I will just say a little bit more about is that of Bishop John A.T. Robinson, who thinks that both of these views present existential realities that need taking more seriously. So I want to say a little bit more about that because he's a really interesting guy. And this is not a view I have ever defended, but it's one I've always found really intriguing and in some ways quite enticing. The first thing is I'm going to give you a quote from him that's not directly relevant to this issue, but it's just so cool and I love it so much and I think it's so important. I just thought I'd throw it in anyway, way just, just to bless you. It is his understanding of what eschatology really is, that eschatology is the theology of the last things, the, the end, the, the theology of the end. And his view is that actually your eschatology is really a function of your doctrine of God, is what I said. It is, in his words, the explication of what must be true of the end, both of history and of the individual, if God is to be the God of biblical faith. So in other words your view of God implies certain kinds of eschatologies and certain kinds of eschatologies imply certain views of God. So if, you, if you're gonna say uh, the end of the story is this eternal torment, that has a theology implicit in it. That tells you something about what you think about God and what God is like. It's not just about eschatology, it's about God. And likewise, flipping it around, when we're doing theology, we're, eschatology, we're saying, what is God like? And if God is like this, what is the end like? and and particularly for Robinson, what is God as revealed in Christ? And if God is as God is revealed in Christ, what does the end look like? Anyway, that's by the by, that's not really what I wanted to say about (laughs) this. What he says is that biblical hell is eternal torment. So he doesn't even consider the, the alternatives of annihilation and all of that kind of stuff. He just looks at the hell passages and he goes, yeah, eternal conscious torment, that's what they say. Okay, that's what they say. But he doesn't reject them. And this is what's so interesting about his view, his position. So what he says is that from our perspective, from our, if you're looking at the situation from our perspective, those confronting the gospel face a real choice between two destinies, life or destruction. And, and so the life that's lived, uh, orientated away from God, if you're living your life turning away from the source of life, that way of life can only possibly end in destruction. It can't possibly yield life in the end because you've turned your back on life. And, the, and genuinely, he said, the real fate of following that route to the end is hell. And that's a reality. And when you're confronted with the gospel, you are faced with two roads, with two real destinies, And you have to make a choice. And and for the person in that situation confronted by that, hell is a reality, at least an existential reality, and a real possibility. But of course, that's seeing it from our perspective. From God's perspective, things look somewhat different. Because from God's perspective, in the end, everybody will, will choose life. And not that they might, they will. The Bible says Robinson never promises that God might be all in all, and that God might achieve his will, God will achieve his will. And from God's perspective, when we look at the situation from that, there's no question, all will be saved. Now this is really quite fascinating uh, because he's saying the point of these two, and he talks in the terms of the language of mythology, the point of these two myths of the end is not to make them consistent, but they speak the real truth about the end of this voyage. If you go this way and this way, in reality, everybody will go this way, But when they're facing the choice, it is a real existential possibility. That's an interesting way of trying to take the whole Bible seriously without synthesizing it and making it all say the same thing. But that's not the only option. This is the more usual approach. Read the universal salvation text in the light of the hell text. So this is the traditional view. So you begin by looking at the passages about hell, and we go, well, okay, we know what they mean, so we lock that down. Whatever these other passages mean, the ones that look like they're universalist, they can't possibly mean what they look like they mean because we know that people go to hell. So what you then do is you reinterpret the universalist text to make them consistent with the hell text. I'll just give you a few examples of how you, you might try and do this. And I'm not at all wanting to derive this view. I think this is a perfectly intelligible and sensible approach to hermeneutics it has a logic to it. So what, what you might say, for example, what about that Colossians 1 text? God reconciling all things through the cross. How does that work? Well, there's different things you might do with that. You might say, well, look, there's different ways in which you could be reconciled to God. Maybe some people are reconciled to God by being saved and all this, and other people are reconciled to God by being judged and punished, you see, and that's that is how God's doing the reconciliation. To my mind, this is an extraordinarily implausible interpretation of that passage, which has few merits. But it's often repeated, and, and I can see why people feel the need to do that. Or similarly, Romans 5, how, what about the all who are justified in Christ, which seems to be all, all, well, you could argue that maybe that's not all people, it's all kinds of people not just Jews, but also Gentiles, all people, but not every single Jew and every single Gentile. Or you might say, and I think, if memory serves me right, Howard Marshall in his debate with Thomas Talbot, took the view that the universal salvation texts describe what God wants to achieve and what God has done in Christ to achieve to save everybody, but in reality, because of free will, that won't happen. So that's a different kind of way of trying to hold the these texts together. Now, I just want to give you an example of somebody who I- exemplifies this. So this is, in, this is Denny Berg from the Four Views on Hell book, which Stondervan published a couple of years back. Basically, what he does is the entire chapter, his entire case for the traditional view of hell is basically looking at 10 passages, each of which on their own, he thinks, establishes hell as eternal conscious torment and together the cases overwhelming. And these serve as a kind of Archimedean point, a sort of fixed point that he can stand safe and secure and view the rest of the universe and fit everything else around it and make sense of it from this this point. So this is his fixed, secure, solid point that these passages he thinks provide him with it. And the language he uses is, we can settle the discussion on eternal torment, the debate, just on these passages. We don't have to look, and his language is, we can settle settle the issue on this. We don't have to look at any other passages to know what the answer is on eternal torment. We don't have to look at any other biblical themes to know what the answer is. The answer is provided by these in what I call the Archimedean point. He also says that it might be, and he's sort of giving advice to his readers here, he says it might be that you come across biblical arguments or theological arguments or philosophical arguments that seem to you to be really powerful and persuasive arguments against eternal torment. But just ignore them because the (laughs) 10-pack, but he doesn't call them the 10-pack, but the 10-pack, these just override everything. They trump everything. So any biblical or theological or philosophical argument against eternal torment falls down, even if you don't know the answer to it, because we have the 10-pack. Part of the problem is, of course, actually, none of these texts obviously say the thing he thinks they obviously say, (laughs) um, either on their own or together. So this Archimedean point isn't nearly as fixed as he'd like to think. But even if it were, well, it isn't, but this is, I think, just a disastrous model of how to do hermeneutics. I mean, he, he would reverse that. He thinks my approach, and he specifically said, my approach to hermeneutics is terrible and hopeless and so on. So that's fine. We have a mutual love and disrespectful. <laughs> we have a mutual, I mean, he's a really nice bloke, he is. And uh, we just disagree. I had a conversation with a guy about Luke 16. It was like this, and it was really frustrating. Um, This is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. You know, the rich man and Lazarus, where they go to Hades and there's a big chasm there. So he said, "Well, what about this passage, Robin?" I said, "Well, you know, it's a difficult text. There's different ways we can think about it. What about this? You know, it's not clear that." He said, "Yeah, I can see that, but I'm not convinced. It's still yeah." And I said, "Well, what do you think about this other text?" "Oh, I'm not interested in that. This this text is what I'm interested in." I said, "Yeah, but what about these?" Themes, these biblical, no, no, let's just look at this text. I said, well, we have looked at this text, and we've seen that it might mean this or it might mean this, so let's look somewhere else. No, no, we can't look somewhere else. We have to get this text sorted out. I thought, well, maybe we can get the flipping text sorted out if we look somewhere else and then come back to it, but no, apparently not. So, that suddenly didn't sound quite so objective and dispassionate as an idea. Fail. Another option, option C, this is to reverse the polarity of the neutron flow, as Doctor Who would say. It's the opposite of the traditional approach where you, you start with the universal salvation text and then you try and read the, the hell text in the light of them. So this approach will often begin by saying, look at these universalist texts. Hey, you know, there's a really good case for thinking that they really do mean what they uh, seem to mean. And so then you go and look at the hell texts, and you say, well, you know, what might these mean? Let's open up that question. Maybe these ones are open for reinterpretation and, and, and so on. And, and not just in the light of universal texts, but also in the light of biblical themes like the love of God, if, if God's love is as it says in these texts, what might that say about how we think about the hell texts and their interpretation? So let me give you an example of a guy who did this, Elhanan Winchester, the guy I mentioned in the last talk. I love him so much. He's such a sweetie. So this is what his kind of goal uh, in his reading of Scripture. He's an evangelical, remember, so he, this is what he wants to do. He says, we need to hold all the biblical teachings together. Not in any way to explain away or weaken the force of either the threatenings or promises set forth in this wondrous book. So the threatenings are the hell texts and the promises of the universal salvation texts. And he's saying we need to find a way to hold them together without weakening either side, either the force of either of them. So he looks at some of the promises of universal salvation. And these are the in this particular passage, those are the texts he looks at. And then He notes that all the Universalist texts have theological principles underpinning them. The kind of things he has in mind is this. God is the creator of all things. This is his theological principle. God loves all his creation. Christ died for all. God's love is unchangeable despite sin. Sin doesn't derail God's purposes. God keeps on loving and keeps on working towards the goal of creation. God's purposes for his creatures are unchanging. These are the kind of theological positive principles that he thinks are biblical and that underpin the promised texts, the universal salvation texts. And then he notes that the hell passages don't actually teach everlasting hell. And he makes quite a lot of astute observations about these passages. All of them he thinks can be interpreted in other ways. So, for example... He has in numerous texts discussions about the Greek word Ionios, everlasting, or or does it mean everlasting? And he argues that actually it doesn't except when applied to God, which interestingly is what Ilaria Romelli argued not too long ago. And I'd said, well, you do realize you were beaten to this by a few hundred years. And so he makes the case through looking at lots of texts in which the word appears that it can't possibly mean everlasting here, it's gotta mean something else. Da, da, da. And so why assume that it has to mean everlasting in these hell texts? Uh, it, it needn't be taken like that. He also, for example, considers the rhetoric of some of the punishment texts, of how you can't take them some of them literally because they use this hyperbolic language that looks like very final and then it, like it looks like god's saying i will destroy you from the face of the earth you will be no more and that will be the end of you and then he restores them and he gives numerous examples of this and and he says well look so we have to handle this language with sensitivity and care so his view is that hell is real but temporary and pretty long actually from his view i mean he talked he's really keen you have to realize for these guys they were being accused of sort of making hell like easy, like, oh, it's just like going on a rubbish holiday or something. Um, so he's going, no, it's like thousands, of, tens of thousands, of, it'll be aeons, you'll be, you know, they're, 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 all of them are like, oh, it's gonna be really oh, terrible, it's gonna go on for ages and ages, you, you know, you wish you'd rather gone on that terrible holiday, but anyway. So hell is bad, but temporary, and we will be redeemed from hell. So that's, that's his view. But you can see something of the, the hermeneutic he's doing. He's coming at it the other way around. He's, he's reversed the hermeneutical trajectory there. Okay, so that's a little bit about different strategies on how we might think about holding the two biblical trajectories together, and they're all worth exploring and testing out and playing around with and, and seeing whether they work or not. A little bit about rhetoric. By that, I have discovered it means more than I took it to mean <laughs> since I got here. So I'm just going to take it in the sense I meant it here. So what I'm talking about is the art of persuasion and the the use of language in in the art of persuasion. And we don't ignore rhetoric. Don't ignore the way people use words, sometimes hyperbolically. I mean, Jesus is a classic example. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. I mean, really? I didn't see many Christians walking around with hands missing. (laughs) So either they're not taking his teaching seriously, or they're all intuitively sort of taking the rhetoric that Jesus was employing into account. Now, what we have in Scripture is what I call the rhetoric of wrath in certain places. This is where you have biblical texts that threaten punishment in very end-of-the-road kind of terms, then subsequently to speak of, of restoration. So, I mean, if you, if you read through Jeremiah, you'd come across numerous examples. I mean, this is, for example, Jeremiah 46. We read some oracles against the nations. So these are particularly interesting because these are about Gentile nations. And we read about how God will destroy Moab and make an end of it. And Elam will be shattered. So you think, gosh, well, stuff them then, isn't it? That's the end of it. And then God goes on to say, a bit later, and then I will restore the fortunes of you know, Moab, and I will restore the fortunes of Elam. Or a little bit earlier in Jeremiah, speaking of Israel, God talks about how Israel will suffer an incurable wound that is beyond healing. You can't, so that's pretty strong, right? You can't cure it. You can't heal it. And then God's going to heal it. <laughs> okay. So that kind of immediately alerts you, be a bit careful with some of the rhetoric, some of the language, be alert to it. Another example, Sodom, which is the paradigm case. There's fire that comes down from heaven on Sodom in Genesis. Becomes the model for this uh, apocalyptic, that's the wrong term. I'm going to use the term in the popular sense. This apocalyptic judgment in which God sends fire. In fact, it becomes the model of hell. And In Jude, Paul talks about how Sodom suffered the, the fate of eternal fire. This Ionios, the fire. But in Ezekiel 16, God restores Sodom. You think, hold on a minute, this is hell. (laughs) This is like the hell paradigm, and now here's God saying he's restoring it. So the point about this is that oftentimes with God, you get to the end of the road, and you find that the end of the road is not the end of the road. A little bit more about this. Because one objection to universalism is that a lot of the classical hell texts, the ones in thread one that we looked at, they don't mitigate uh, the the threats. They don't say, don't do this or you'll go to hell. But don't worry, it's just temporary. You'll be out of it uh, in a jiffy, or maybe, maybe a long time, maybe multiple aeons. But they don't say anything like that. They just say, don't do this or it's gonna be bad. So really, the, uh, the argument is, and this is not a stupid argument, this is a very s- sensible and serious one, the argument is, well look, if you see these held texts and they don't give any indication that there's anything other than this, then we should assume that there isn't anything other than this, this is it, right? So, uh, uh, just a little something to say here about the, the speech context of some of these speeches. If a speech is aiming to persuade its audience, and there's lots and lots of work on rhetoric in the ancient world. They were really very aware of rhetoric and how it worked and gave lots and lots of attention to it. The art of persuasion and how to use speech to that effect. If speech aims to persuade its audience through warnings of coming judgment, it might not mitigate the warning. So I've given you examples already. If you have a prophetic oracle, the prophet says, people of Israel, Repent, if you don't repent, God will destroy Jerusalem and hand it over to the Babylonians. They will utterly destroy it, right? Numerous oracles like that. No, no mitigation, no words like, don't worry, don't worry, uh, it'll only be for a while and you'll get out. In those contexts, you don't get those kind of mitigations the lack of mention of any post-destruction hope in those kind of contexts is a function of the rhetorical context. If Jeremiah's trying to persuade these people, repent, stop doing this, or you know this is gonna happen, it's not really gonna be help his cause to go, don't worry though, it's just for a bit. Uh, They don't do that, they don't tend to do that. And a lot of the early church fathers were the same. Origen would preach hell, and very specifically wouldn't say, it's not the end of the road. And he, and he says this, he says he doesn't, he doesn't say this uh, because for some people that would make them think, oh, it didn't matter then. So he doesn't say it. Even though he believes it's not the end of the road, he doesn't tell them. He holds that information back because he needs to persuade them. So then the question that we're faced with is, is there any hope beyond hell? And my point is simply this, the presence or absence of post-destruction hope must be argued for on other grounds. You can't just say it's not mentioned in this context and so there isn't any. You have to provide other grounds other than just simply noting that it's not mentioned in this context in in order to settle the question of whether there is any post-destruction hope. I don't know whether that makes any sense whatsoever, but hopefully it makes some. Now, getting a little bit more theological, something about canonical context Here I will nail my colors to the mast because I think this is an important point. The meanings of texts cannot be limited to authorial intention. By that I mean the meaning of a biblical text doesn't, you can't limit the meaning of that text to what, say, Jeremiah was thinking he meant when he said it. So it's often a principle of interpretation, particularly among evangelicals, that texts mean what the author intended. Now I do think what the author intended is a very important issue, an an important point, and it plays an important role in what we might consider as legitimate or illegitimate ways of uh, explaining texts and how they might mean in different contexts. But I don't think that uh, that a serious canonical reading of, of the Bible can say that meaning is limited to what authors meant. Meaning, I say here, can unfold and expand in the light of developing canonical and salvation historical processes. So let me give you an example of this. This is Isaiah 45 and the way it's used in Philippians chapter two. So let me just remind you what I'm talking about here. Philippians chapter 2 is that famous passage, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You know the bit I'm talking about. Now, Paul is actually drawing on Isaiah, a bit of Isaiah 45 when he says this. And so let's, let's take a, a, a brief look at Isaiah 45. I'll, I'll, I'll give make a few comments about it. You can read it later. In Isaiah 45, the situation is that the nations have been judged by God. And a whole bunch of them, the, those from among the nations have been destroyed. So they're dead. I mean, that means dead. They're dead. But the survivors of the nations come. And God invites them to come, the survivors of the nations. And he says, come unto me, all you ends of the earth, and be saved. He's talking to the nations that they should come to him, the God of Israel, and be saved. And then he takes an oath. And by myself I was sworn in you know, every knee will bow, every tongue will take oaths in my name. And in the context of Isaiah, this is the nations, and all the, but not everybody, right? It's only the survivors of the nations. So this is, this is a kind of universalism, and it is a universal salvation, but it's not a universal salvation of everyone in the world. Is this making any sense? God is saying by these words, God is making an oath, taking it, by myself I have sworn, God is taking an oath, that he is Going to save the survivors of the nations, but if you're one of those who was destroyed and you're not one of the survivors, well, it's too late for you, buddy, right? Philippians two, Paul takes this text and does something really interesting. A couple of things really interesting with it. One of them is he takes and applies it to Jesus. So, is God making an oath that that they're going to swear by His name and bow to His name, the name of God? Paul takes that and applies it to Jesus. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess." So this is really interesting because Jesus is somehow occupying the place of God in this prophecy. And that says a lot about his views about Jesus. But the other thing that he does is interesting is he expands the, 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 the range of the prophecy. So he says, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will in heaven and on earth. And under the earth, under the earth, that's the people who, dead, dead people, right in Sheol, whatever. They will, they will be the ones who will bear the knee and confess and so on. So suddenly, Paul has expanded the range of this all, in a way beyond what Isaiah was doing. He's reading it in the light of Christ and in this expanded eschatology, and that same text's meaning is now like a balloon has been stretched big. And now it includes everybody, I mean, literally, even the dead people. I mean, everybody is included in it. So here is an interesting question. Was the author of Isaiah 45 a universalist? Well, no, not really, not not in the sense that I would mean. He didn't think that everybody would be saved in the sense that I would talk about that. But that's not the only interesting question. You see, you can't settle discussions about universalism there. Because you, you can go on and say, but hold on a minute. From where we stand in the story, and I'll say more in the next session about the Bible as a sort of continuous story. From where we stand in the story, looking back to Isaiah 45, how does the teaching of Isaiah 45 feed into our reflections on universalism? And looking at the way Paul treats it, Actually, Isaiah 45 provides fuel and theological resources that sort of blossom out into this really cosmic, universalist view, even though Isaiah himself wasn't thinking like that. Does that, that make any sense? So, what, what you have is the meaning of the text that Paul draws out doesn't ignore what Isaiah means, it is, li- it is rooted in what the Isaiah text was getting at, but it's stretching it, it's growing bigger and the meaning of the text that's unfolding and expanding out of it is more than what Isaiah meant. So the reason this might be important is this. Universalists, saying that universalism is biblical doesn't commit you to saying that all the biblical authors believed in universal salvation. Well, they didn't. I mean, that's just, I would have thought that was a fact. But in the same way, I mean, Nobody who says that the idea of the Trinity, the Trinity, is biblical, thinks that all the biblical authors believed in it, that God was, you know, three hypostases and one usia. I mean, just no, they didn't. Everybody knows they didn't. But it doesn't mean that that idea isn't the sort of culmination and summation of biblical trajectories and so on. Does that make any sense? Okay, good. Well, let's talk about the Trinity then, because I think that illustrates quite an interesting sense in which we might clarify, what do we mean when we say that something is biblical? And it it, it sort of helps us to understand that a little bit more. So the doctrine of the Trinity, as any good, self-respected Jehovah's Witness will tell you, is not formulated in the Bible. You will find no Bible verse that says God is one being and three persons and... The Father's not the Son, the Son's not the Spirit, all that kind of stuff. You won't get that. But what what the Trinity does is it it develops from following lines of diverse biblical teachings to the place where they meet. So I'm going to annoy Alex by walking over here. Is that all right? Okay. So you can see here, this is like the biblical texts, and none of them sort of formulate this idea of the Trinity, but they're kind of, this is the point where they meet if you follow these different biblical trajectories, this is a way in which they all converge. And so we have various teachings about Jesus. Yes, definitely human. (laughs) No question, there's lots of, and yet Jesus clearly isn't the father, and he's not the spirit, and yet there's some very close relationship between them. And Jesus is clearly considered to be divine in some sense in some texts, And, and the spirit is, so, you know, so there's all of these different things going on, and, and you can see this sort of ferment within the, 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 the worship and thought of the early church as they're, they're thinking through this stuff. And you see the seeds of Trinitarian ideas, you see the, the, may the blessing of the Father, you know, grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, love of God, fellowship of the Holy Spirit, 2 Corinthians, be with it. You know, you get lots of texts where they're brought together they're, and so on. So, although it's not explicitly formulated, the early church considered it to be very biblical, and they considered the doctrine of the Trinity not to be something they'd invented to add to the Bible, but simply a way of holding together what the Bible had to say about God and their experience of God as revealed in Christ and in the experience of the Spirit in the community. So, that actually might have implications for how we think about the ways in which universalism might claim to be biblical. So, Universal salvation might be a way of thinking through the implications of various biblical teachings. It's not, let's not limit ourselves in this discussion to going, give me a proof text, give me a verse that says everyone will be saved. Yes, we can do that, and they're worth talking about, and we should do that, but there's more to do. Let's consider the implications of various biblical teachings. If this is true, what does that mean? Where does that take us? And here's another interesting way that we might phrase the question. Sometimes people ask the question, well, was St. Paul a universalist? This is a question, it's a legitimate question. But it might not be the only relevant question. We might also say, is universalism the natural implication of Paul's teaching? Tony, I didn't realize this, he showed me yesterday C.H. Dodd's commentary on Romans. And this is exactly what C.H. Dodd argues on Romans chapter 11. He says, you know, even if Paul didn't formulate the question for himself, will everyone be saved in quite the way we're asking it? We have to, do, we have to ask that question. And the, the theology that Paul's expanding here heads right at it like a rocket aiming at the moon. This is my paraphrase. <laughs> it's like a rocket. And if we just follow where it's going, that's where it goes. It goes to universal salvation. So even if Paul never formally posed the question about where it goes and so on, We can't help but go there if we're going to take him seriously. And there are other New Testament scholars who argue this. Douglas Campbell, professor of New Testament at Duke Divinity School, argues exactly the same. Paul maybe didn't formulate some of the questions we have about universalism and the way we do, but if you take his theology seriously and all the different trajectories in it, like like with that Trinity thing, this is where they converge. They take you to universalism, and he's quite clear about that universalism is where paul's theology takes you it is the implication of paul's teaching the way i like to think about it is if you could get paul to go to the pub with you and you know you'd say hey paul look you know i've been thinking about the stuff you said and it seems to me that you know if this is the case and you know wouldn't it be that everyone would be saved then i would like to think this my theology would say if I'm right about the way I've read Paul, Paul would go, you know, I hadn't thought about putting it quite like that, but you're spot on, digger, <laughs> or whatever. That's my attempt at an Australian accent. <laughs> yeah, pretty rubbish, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, so Paul would go, yeah, that, that is right. That's, that's, that is the conclusion of where my thought would go. So it might be that things can be biblical in this more extended sense, not simply in the, case, in the sense that they're explicitly taught, although I do think Paul did explicitly say universalist things. I think beyond that we can say, actually, some of the trajectories of where his theology goes heads in that direction, and that also counts as being biblical. So the question we're asking then is this. If we're following different biblical strands of theology about the love of God and Christ's work in atonement and so on, where do they converge? And one possibility might be that they converge at this universal salvation point, which is not Necessarily always explicitly articulated, but it's where they're kind of pointing. It's worth considering. Yeah, so which is to make an important point, and this goes back to what I said about Denny Burke's thing earlier with his 10 Bible passages about hell and being the beginning and end of the discussion. And I'm sure, you know, he would, of course, have things to say about the universal salvation texts, and he does make a few comments to that effect that they can't, you know, they must be interpreted differently. But basically, questions of hell and universal salvation can't be limited to biblical passages about hell and universal salvation because they are completely tangled up with other issues in biblical theology. So yes, look at hell texts, yes, look at texts about universal salvation, but look at texts about a bunch of other stuff. Look at texts about God's love and justice and ask yourself how those things would relate to the question because we have to take those texts seriously too and we have to see how they connect. Look at texts that deal with the issue of sin and that deal with the issue of how Christ defeats sin and and how do those texts relate to the issue of universal salvation or otherwise because they all have to be linked in. Look at the issues of texts that deal with human freedom and divine sovereignty and similarly You know, what we need to do, basically, I mean, and there's a whole bunch of other issues you might want to look at, but what what I'm saying is, when we're thinking about this issue in scripture, we need to spread our net really wide, and this is why it's hard to do. This is why it takes a long time and you can't just go, oh, I don't know what I think about that, give me a week and I'll tell you. Uh, It took me two years of thinking about it constantly to sort of come to some semblance of a view for myself, and it's an ongoing thing, as I'm still thinking a whole bunch of stuff through. What we need, then, and need to try and cultivate within ourselves is a conversation, which seems an appropriate metaphor in gospel conversations. We need to allow these different biblical teachings to have conversations with each other, let, get these texts talking to each other, and interrogate them, and then go back to this one and say, yeah, well, yeah, all right, what about this one? Back and forth, and so on. What I'm saying, then, is don't lock down the answer too fast. You know, like, with your, well, I've settled the question on my ten texts, I can lock the answer down, and I'm never going to let anything, no matter what, interfere with that answer. We need to remain open to fresh possibilities so that God can actually speak to us through scripture and challenge us. Getting towards the end now. One recovery in recent years, though it was never really completely lost, is this idea that the Bible is a narrative, a big narrative. And in the final talk today, I'm going to devote the whole thing to that, so I'm not really going to say much about it apart from to raise it as an issue now. All the parts of the biblical story need to be understood in relation to the whole, and the whole needs to be understood in relation to the part. So if you're looking at a passage about hell or universal salvation, you need to look at that passage in the light of the whole story and vice versa, and I'll have more to say about that in the next time. So, it's, a very, it's always a bad idea to isolate passages from their context in the story and, and sort of use them as proof texts. It's, it's never a good way to go. So, the real issue is this, as I see it, and this is what the last talk will be about eschatological punishment needs to find a narratively intelligible place in the wider ecology of the story. If we're going to argue, that th- th- there's an eternal punishment in hell, we need to give an account of it that fits in this story. You can't just tack it on. It has to have a narrative logic and coherence. It has to fit the story or it's gonna be out of tune. It's gonna be discordant, it's not gonna make sense. Uh, and, and so in the next talk, I will be, I'll be looking at them. There's just one final thought uh, here on humility. The Bible has lots of theologies in it, okay? Lots of theologies. You've got Matthew's theology and Mark's theology, Paul's theology, John's theology, and that's just New Testament. Isaiah's theology, and actually, there's more than one Isaiah, (laughs) honest, Uh, and and so on. So there's lots of different theologies in the Bible. And so when we, and this is the really strange thing, Um, when we are doing theology with our Bibles open, we're not just interested in, Well, what's Paul's theology? Though we are interested in that. What's John's theology? Though we are interested in that, too. What we're looking to do is crafting a theology that draws on the authoritative insights of a full range of authors. And this means, and this is a really weird thing when you think about it, what this means is that when we are doing a sort of whole Bible theology, we're actually crafting a theology that is not the theology of any author in the Bible, not a single one of them. So the theology, my theology of that of the, tries to take the whole Bible into account, it's not Paul's theology, it's not John's, it's not, it's not anybody's. It's actually, it's mine, or my church's, or whatever. And we need to be conscious of that. What we're trying to do, and I love this idea from Karl Barth, so, and I think it's a really helpful observation on what we're really about when we're doing theological reflection as Christians. Our theological task is not to repeat what the apostles and prophets said, but to say what we have to say in the light of what the apostles and prophets said. So what we're doing is we want to take Paul really seriously. We want to take John really seriously. And, all, and all these, we want to take all these things really seriously but we're not just looking to repeat what they say. We have to address the gospel to our generation and the context in which we live, and we have to do it in a way that sits under the guidance and authority of these texts, but in a way that allows us to do our thing and say what we have to say in our context. And that isn't gonna be just repeating what Paul said, although it is gonna be um, being shaped massively by what all of these people said. And thus, And this is my final point on humility. All of our Bible-based theologies are our theologies, and we need to own them as that. And as such, they are always fallible and open to correction. I mean, you might, even if you were a biblical inerrantist, hopefully none of us think that our interpretations of the Bible are inerrant. Uh, They're not, so we are always open to judgment, always open to correction, always open to learning, and having the humility to admit we may have got it wrong. And that's fine, we just need to learn to live with that. Here ends the second lesson. And, and if, have we got time for a question? I think. Yeah.
1: Well, I thought first of all I'd, I'd like to grab uh, the stage and accustom as I am to public speaking. Uh, what you were saying did, did uh, draw some thoughts out of me that have been very important in my life. Your last point about the putting putting the this story into a big landscape, I think is really important. And I've heard Rowan Williams talk about the need for you know big picture thinking um, as opposed to small picture thinking. So I uh, I'd like to commend all of that to all of us that the capacity to get a holistic picture of that narrative is our task rather than going, you know, point by point by point. And I actually take quite a strong um, theological view of that. I think we're, we human beings are gifted with what is called, among other things, the unity of consciousness. And unity has been a, a mystery about that. the cognitive science is arguing about. Like, where, where do we get unity from? The capacity in our mind to draw all the parts together is quite a mystery, not just in theology, but one of the great phrases that captures big picture thinking is the phrase gestalt, which I think I mentioned to you the other day that you probably have heard of gestalt thinking. (laughs) Uh, That was a theory of thinking that uh, was developed in um, the early 20th century by German psychologists who essentially would be big picture thinking that we... We all have mental landscapes and we put things inside mental landscapes. And I'm very much of the belief that strong thinkers are gestalt thinkers and weak thinkers are point solution thinkers in any area in life. When when you're dealing with point solutions, it actually never works out. It doesn't lead to good decisions. Uh, It leads to disproportionate emphases. It doesn't lead to innovation. The, the, in any field, the capacity to put things into a picture is, is breakthrough. And the phrase gestalt thinking, as I was sharing with Robin, was actually first used about Einstein, because these German psychologists were friends of Einstein, and he actually wrote the introduction to gestalt thinking. And he he talked about the way he thought about the universe as creating a big, big kind of almost tableau or landscape in his mind from which he would then eventually derive his theories but that landscape he couldn't even put into words it were just pictures and in a way I think that's a very good uh, illustration of how we might like to think about the whole of the scripture and I think the second point I found really thrilling was this idea of the trajectories of which the trinity was a great example that emergent thinking that that Truth tends to emerge out of points of view and we have in our, and that end point, that sort of end game is hard to grasp, but um, there's, that's very much something in us human beings. We're looking for what Aristotle called the final cause, which will synthesise and bring all things together. And there's another theory in cognition called abduction. We're used to deduction and induction. But, but what was called abduction by C.S. Peirce, a 20th century, early 20th century philosopher, is that leap of faith. We seem to have this ability in our minds to leap to some end point. We don't know how we got there and almost organise back from that end point. People say, how did you get to that end point? We say, well, I, I don't really know. And whilst we're applying this to theology, that abduction is, the, is still today the best explanation of Steve Jobs and Apple. It's this capacity of a human being to leap across all the boundaries to some end point and then work backwards from it. And I think, I've I've speculated to myself that there's something in that in saying, in the end, God will save all the cosmos and all salvation. And intuitively, that leap makes a lot of sense to me. If you are to say, well, explain exactly the process by which he's going to do that, say, well, I have no idea. And and if people say, well, therefore, you've lost the debate, because you can't explain that. Well, actually, I say, all of great human endeavor works that way anyway. this abductive leap to an end point. My final reflection, I just wanted to back up, which did go to that first slide. I love what Carl Bart said about, we're writing our own story. Mm-hmm. I think, I actually think we really need to not, not address that casually. It's actually a responsibility. Uh, we are the only people living in Sydney, in our context, in 2019. Paul's not here. Carl Bart's not here. They kind of did their job. When I was a young, enthusiastic Christian at the age of 18, a wonderful old, I went to an open brethren church, and uh, a wonderful man called Captain Wilkins, a very British ex-naval guy, prayed for me. And I'll never forget the prayer he prayed. He actually was quoting a sermon of Peter's, I think. But he said, May Tony serve his own generation by the will of God. He was quoting that phrase where I think Peter was talking about David it said David served his generation by the will of God and fell asleep so we serve our generation which means well, there's a there's a real task to kind of put the story together if for a postmodern world and you know that means we'll pull up certain things that perhaps others haven't uh, paid attention to and we and, and 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 far from us feeling that this is something that we need to be defensive about it's actually a responsibility to do what Paul did in Acts 17, you know, and mm-hmm. craft a story for the Athenians. So I think it was wonderful. Uh, now, so I've said some of my reflections. My wife always tells me I never ask questions. or ask questions. It's just an opportunity for me to say something. So I've done <laughs> that. So. But I think we've got a couple of minutes. We could certainly take one or two questions if somebody wants. Yes.
0: Uh, if you're not going to cover it later, let me just briefly talk about Sheol, Gehenna, and Sitaris. Yeah. Well, yes. Okay. So in the Old Testament, Sheol is the realm of the dead. And you know, it's it's, it's a very murkily defined place. It's dark. You know, no, you know, there's people there, but they're not really living. They're dead. I mean, they're not. They're sort of conscious but they're not and nobody wants to be there and they don't worship God there. You know, so, so it's a bit of a dreary view of death. So the, Sheol is, is this, it's the world of the dead. Now then it gets complicated because in the second temple Jewish period, you get different views of arising. So, and, and that's part of the debate behind what's behind the New Testament text. Hades, is from Greek mythology, is, but it got imported to become the translation of Sheol. So Hades is sometimes just the word for Sheol, uh, and it's, it's this world of the dead, but it also sort of evolves in the second temple period to become a place where you know, bad things happen like in Greek mythology, <laughs> nasty stuff happens in Hades, and you find this in the parable, the only really, the only real text, in the New Testament that deals with Hades like this is Luke 16 and the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And it's Hades that they go to. And then what is this Hades then? Well, a bit the rich man's like in torment, isn't <laughs> he? He just wants a little drop of, just a drop of water on my tongue. So that's not just like the Old Testament Hades, that's, that's developed. And, and of course, in the book of Revelation at the end, it's Hades, the dead, the sea gives up its dead, and so on, and then death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. So Hades is where the dead people are, and, that, and all the contents of Hades thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire then, it, well, which one are you gonna say is hell? I mean, if the lake of fire is hell, and that's the way we normally think, Hades isn't hell in that text. Uh, Hades is like the waiting place until it's thrown into the lake of fire, and then it's hell. And Gehenna is what Jesus talks about in most of the texts that are talked about as being about hell. Gehenna is the valley next to Jerusalem. And it's a valley that had all sorts of associations in the Old Testament because it was associated with idolatry and sacrifice, uh, idolatrous sacrifice of children and so on. So it was considered the unclean and despicable place in, in Jeremiah 7, is it? I can't remember the chapter, it might be seven or 20, anyway. I can find out if you wanna know. And then Gehenna becomes a place of judgment. So God brings judgment and he would all be slaughter in the Valley of Gehenna. Uh, and it's a place of divine judgment and there's lots of corpses there. And the bit at the end of Isaiah 66, with all the, uh, the worms and the fire, the corpses with the flames and the worms, which then become used by Jesus as a hell text about the worms that don't die and so on. Uh, that is almost certainly dealing with imagery about Gehenna with lots of corpses I mean they are dead they're not in Isaiah they're not conscious but though they are in Jesus text they're not conscious in Isaiah so this is Gehenna it's a literal valley which is associated with judgment and, and punishment and so on which then Jesus sort of And then there are debates around this. So is Jesus, was it that there were Jewish views, strong Jewish views about what Gehenna was as post-mortem punishment, and did Jesus feed off that? Or did Jesus actually innovate here? Because all the Jewish, Second Temple Jewish texts we have about Gehenna and the suffering in Gehenna were actually written down after the time of Jesus. So there is some debate as to whether Jesus actually was the first person to really use Gehenna in this way about post-mortem punishment, and later Jewish texts pick up on it and take it in different t- directions. And it becomes complicated because Second Temple Jews had different views about Gehenna. Some thought about it in terms of eternal torment, some thought about it in terms of annihilation, some thought about it that you could get out of Gehenna. So there was not it wasn't like a fixed idea, it was a fluid image. It was an image that was used in different kind of ways by different groups of Jewish people, Jesus One of them. So the question is, in what sense is Jesus using it? That becomes the issue in terms of interpretation. And it's difficult to set down a fixed background against which to interpret Jesus because it was a fluid notion. And also the problems of dating. Anyway, this is getting a bit technical. So, Gehenna is the thing that is about hell, and there is debate among New Testament scholars, is he talking about a post-mortem punishment at all, or is this a way of talking about, I mean, Tom Wright argues that he's not talking about hell, he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, literally the destruction of Jerusalem, and he's warning about the dangers of being thrown into Gehenna, like literally being thrown into the valley next to Jerusalem when the Romans come. So, it might not even be that Jesus is talking about eschatological punishment there. When Paul talks about eschatological punishment, he doesn't use the language of Gehenna. It's, it's really Jesus that does that, it's, re, it's restricted to him. So, Gehenna is maybe hell or not, if you're Tom Wright. Hades is the world of the dead, which is Sheol, but it might be more than that. It might be something that crosses over into hell in some texts, but not in others. The whole thing's a bit of a mess. See, so you're asking for clarity, and the problem is it's not terribly clear. And that's one of the challenges in interpreting some of the gospel texts and the New Testament texts is trying to make sense of it when the, the world, the thought world at the time, wasn't conceptually clear in the way we'd like it to have been. That was not helpful, was it? <laughs> oh, yes, okay. So, so this only occurs once in the New Testament. In Is it 2 Peter? Yeah. Uh, so this is the place again from Greek mythology. So this is this is a place in Greek mythology which is used where the, I think where Peter sees the watchers. Yes, that's right. Okay. So there's a there's a story in story in Genesis of the Nephilim. The sons of God come down. And they mate with the children. Of, this are daughters of men. And then there's the Nephilim. There's all sorts of interpretation things there. This story becomes really big in the Second Temple period. It, one Enoch. Uh, which is a fantastic text and was very influential in early Christianity. One uh, Enoch sees these watchers as um, divine beings, like members of the divine council, and they, uh, they come down. They are become fallen. Well, they didn't become actually the demons of the offspring, anyway, forget that. They are thrown into Tartarus, and they are kept there for the day of judgment. Uh, that's what Peter's saying. Those angels are kept there, and they're held in everlasting chains. And the word everlasting there is not ionios, it's idios, which does mean everlasting. It's the only time it occurs in in, in regard to punishment in the New Testament. Uh, And there is the chains that are eternal uh, that hold these angels, and it's holding them there so that they can't escape until the time of judgment. So there it appears to be, and we've only got the one usage to go on for New Testament use, there it appears to be that a, a sort of holding place for bad angelic beings until the day of judgment. But beyond that, it has no function in New Testament theology.